Okay, I think we can get started. Um, I'm Sebastian Malaby. I work at the Council on Foreign Relations. You've already heard from my colleague uh, Ben Steele this morning. You've indirectly heard from two other colleagues at the Council on Foreign Relations, um, Neil Bowen and Matt Klein, who are back there, uh, since they work, amongst others, on the geographics blog that um, the Council puts out. It's done some great work on Europe. It's funny, maybe an irony that people here would appreciate uh, that just at the time when uh, European governments are offering what I would view as uh, not terribly credible plans to guarantee uh, sovereign bonds, there were actually some private guarantees. These are called CDS, of course, and they're being uh, comprehensively undermined uh, by so-called voluntary debt workouts which don't trigger them. Um, this is the latest contribution from Geographics. Anyway, that's enough of a commercial for Geographics. Did you know Stack Geographics, CFR.org? Uh, we're here to talk to Bob Zelik. I've been in Washington 16 years. Uh, Bob is uh, the personification uh, of the kind of silo-busting, um, polymathic energy, which says I'm not just interested in international economics, uh, I'm not just interested in international relations, I'm not just a US government official, I'm also going to do uh, multilateral diplomacy. And so Bob has been uh, on all sides of these various divides. Uh, he has a voracious intellect. Uh, and so it's always interesting uh, to speak with him, whether he's in office or out of office, although mostly he's been in office uh, uh, recently. He's been at the World Bank, uh, president of the World Bank Group since 2007. Um, let's start with Europe, since Europe is on everybody's uh, minds. Uh, this is a monetary policy conference, so I guess there might be some uh, monetary policy lessons that come out of this mess. Questions about what really does work as an optimal currency area might be one set of questions, but, but let me ask you how, do you, how do you see the lessons coming out of the European crisis? Well, first, Sebastian, thank you for doing this, and I thank Cato for the invitation. Uh, <coughs> when I was the uh, trade representative from 2001 to 2005, I used to interact with Sebastian, but always appreciated uh, Cato as one of the last uh, free traders uh, in Washington, so very much appreciate uh, the support that you've always had on the, uh, the trade agenda is important now as ever, I would say. Um, in the European uh, issue right now, um, I said in August, and I hold to this, I think that we're, we're in a danger zone. Um, we have a combination of three issues. You have uh, a banking issue, a sovereign debt issue, but also a competitiveness issue uh, related uh, to the monetary union. And I think so far uh, the European countries have tended to address these sort of a, a day late and a, a euro short. Um, and by and large they've been trying to provide liquidity measures and some of the fundamental issues still have to be addressed. I think one of the best ways to, to frame the agenda now is I, I'll relay a uh, description that one of the German officials said to me after the meeting in late October where the Eurozone uh, thought that it had taken a number of steps. And they, they highlighted five elements that uh, have to move together uh, to be able to help address this problem. The, the first was that of the uh, building the bank capital, um, obviously the case. But from a broader policy view, and this is something we're working on at the bank, uh, one has to recognize that banks can uh, improve their leverage ratio one of two ways. They can either add capital or they can lower assets. And so one has to expect, and we're already seeing, for example, trade finance, which is very important, is uh, easy to run off. It's a short-term product. 
However, it's also a very labor and art organization intensive product, so it's not so easy to replicate. Um, banks in Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans that are often linked to European banking systems, vulnerable. And just in general, I think you're going to see a broader uh, deleveraging process to this. Second uh, is the uh, forgiveness of the Greek debt. Uh, time will tell whether that's a significant enough amount. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of this obviously relates to the Greek policy actions. In a way, Greece uh, is truly a peripheral issue at this point because it's only about 2%, as you know, of, of, of EU GDP. And there is a funding mechanism to keep rolling over. But the real issue then goes to the third element, which was that Europe was trying to create uh, an EFSF of about, in dollar terms, about $600 billion. This was to provide uh, funding to roll over Greece, to a degree Portugal, Ireland, which has been doing uh, better in any event. But the real core issue, and this is the core issue we've seen break over the past seven days, is to be able to assist Italy and Spain with the rollover. And the idea in late October was that the European countries would multiply this in some fashion. So one of the ideas was to use this money as a, in a sense, a first loss uh, insurance provision. It might have worked, but it's kind of drifted. And so you're really now into the fourth issue, which is uh, the actions that are going to be taken by the governments in Italy and Spain. And uh, this is, uh, I think, also indicative of a larger change we've seen in Europe, which is that what markets started to do, at least in my view, in August, was start to move away from just making the economic and financial calculations to making judgments about governance. And in effect, what you saw with the Berlusconi government is even if they talked about various plans, there wasn't confidence that they would be following through. And so the challenge now, which markets are really questioning, is whether the Monte government or the Spanish government after the elections will follow through. And just to give you a sense of validation of this, I just came back from London and Berlin. Uh, and in London, if you go back and, and you look at the, the British um, debt-to-GDP ratio or, or budget deficit, numbers aren't so good. But because the government is quite firmly convinced people of the path, it's actually become a flight uh, to quality. And so what we're seeing right now, in fact, is in a sense a bit of a slow motion run as people are uncertain about uh, that sovereign debt and obviously the banks that hold the debt and all the liquidity aspects of this. And then the fifth piece, which is important to keep your eye on, and it's something not looked on as much on this side of the Atlantic, but it was highlighted by Chancellor Merkel at her party conference, the CDU conference over the weekend, where she was saying, uh, if Germany is going to play this role, it, we're going to have to start to face the questions of what type of, she referred to political union, on this side of the Atlantic it might be more discussed as a form of fiscal union, that would complement uh, the monetary union. And these are huge questions. These are sort of questions that Alexander Hamilton faced with assumptions of debt, uh, of historic debt, not future debt. But these are the issues um, that we have right now in play. But there's one other aspect that I want to underscore, because even at a monetary conference, I think it's useful to come back to this. All these measures are about liquidity and buying time. And um, I'm not against buying time as a policy official, but it's a question of how you use the time. And ultimately, there have to be policies that create the foundations for growth. And these are, whether you call it, I'm not talking about the macroeconomic sort of growth within a, uh, within a uh, possible 
sort of uh, frame of reference. I'm talking about policies that create the right investment environment, the deregulatory environment, the structural growth environment, the innovation. And uh, those, that's still a very open question mark here for Europe to get out of this. I'll make one last observation just because it's coincidental. I've had a couple meetings with members of Congress uh, over the past couple days, including one this morning. And one other takeaway that I'll just share with you was when I was at this Con G20 meeting, it was, I've been through a lot of these summits, you know, these meetings, but I had a very uncomfortable feeling to watch the Eurozone members and the other EU members basically flail around with a group of emerging markets that are now part of the G20. 15 years ago, these were the countries that were subject to the IMF program. And basically, you could feel, in a, in a courteous way, there was somewhat between pity and contempt for Europe being unable to deal with this. And I just say, while well, I'm in a multilateral post, many of you are American, I'll just say, uh, I never want the United States to be in this position because the implications of this, for the implications of monetary affairs towards power, perceptions of power, are quite significant. And this is going to be another element of what comes out of this autumn's events. Can we just drill down a bit on Germany? Because you know Germany very well. Uh, and they've just thrown out at the CDU conference this objective of redoing the European treaty to some extent. Uh, and they set a deadline of the end of next year. Uh, that seems to be their vision. That, you know, this is the biggest challenge since the Second World War. We need to rise to the challenge. We need to have a directly elected president for Europe and so forth. It appears that there's a, just a massive mismatch between the aggression of the vision and the willingness to commit short-term resources to get anywhere, to even have a chance of implementing the vision. What's going on with that? I mean, you know, yeah. you'd, you'd expect them to be more willing to transfer resources in the short term to keep the show on the road if, that, if in the long term they want to be at United Europe. Well, be a little patient with me because I've been reflecting on this a lot. I've been in Germany twice in the past three or four weeks, and I stay in touch with a number of German friends in and outside the government. And I think Germany is going to be the critical question going forward on this. Um, one aspect is Germany has taken a series of positions, at least in my view, individually are reasonable. But I'm not sure they will add up with the vision that Germany has. Now, let me be uh, more specific. Um, unlike the Federal Reserve, the ECB is not truly a lender of last resort. It isn't set up that way. It's legally not supposed to perform that role. So while it can intervene and did intervene with these bond markets, it's not really to be there to buy Italy and Spain out of their problems. And the Germans as a country, and the Bundesbank in particular, feel this very strongly. And this is where it gets to the notion of a fiscal and monetary unit. They're, part of this is the traditional German fear of inflation, but part of it is the sense that they don't want to avoid the fundamental reforms that these countries have to make. A second approach would be to provide more liquidity through the EFSF. And here again, Germany said, we put in a big sum of money, and they have a couple hundred billion dollars. That's enough. A third one that came up, for example, at the G20 meeting was whether you have another issuance of SDRs, and Europeans might put the SDRs in the FSF. And here again, the Bundesbank said no. The idea is, could you leverage the FSF more? And they said, well, that is also risky to credit. Each of those are, in my view, uh, respectable and responsible positions. However, 
it, I think there's going to be a fundamental disconnect with the nature of the European Monetary Union. So not to put too fine a point on it, but when I talk with many German colleagues and friends, at heart when you say, well then how do you, how do you get through this? It, it kind of becomes um, other Europeans should be more like us. And so if, if, if uh, Greeks and Italians and others in southern Mediterranean are not willing to become Germans, you, you haven't solved the fundamental problem. So it's breakout on the cut? Well, I think that's th this is where the core issue will come to, and that is what the, the second political point that I wanted to touch on is what I think Chancellor Merkel is doing, and personally I'm very sympathetic to this, is that you know, the German taxpayer is saying, why are we paying for all this? And you know, the Greeks could privatize more, they retire too early, so on and so forth. But we're, I think sometimes Americans may underestimate the German commitment to Europe as an institution. I mean, the whole post-war logic has been built into that. Unification was built into that. So what I think Merkel is doing, and frankly, I urged her to do this a little earlier, is to start to say to the German public, look, we, we need to have a vision of where this is going. What's the picture? Where's the direction? Um, and I think that's what she's highlighting now, uh, to, to sort of build the overall public support. Now, the, the tricky part, though, will be, this is not just a question of saying, thou shalt do this. This is going to require some careful economic diplomacy, not only with France, the European Commission, just as Cole used the European Commission, unification, other countries. And that will be the, sort of the, the devil in the details of how that moves forward. But to go to your question, um, I think, you know, and this may come relatively soon, is that you, you either have to create uh, a more effective reform system, a more effective transfer union, a more effective liquidity while you're doing the reform system, or you have to face the consequences that to have a single currency with countries that are highly indebted, some of which are uncompetitive, won't work. And so these are, uh, you know, it's understandable in Europe, it's true in America, other places, uh, politicians prefer to muddle through things of it. But I, I honestly believe that Europe is at a point where the muddling through won't work. So I think though the questions that you're asking are fundamentally questions that only can be answered by Europeans. They are, they're, they're obviously issues of political economy as much as finance. I think Merkel is trying to set the stage for that. And to go to your point about the disconnect of time periods, I think a vision about what they call economic governance or we might call political fiscal reform could uh, allow one to start to take some of these intermediate actions. But I think it's far from clear where they'll go on these intermediate actions. And if I have one particular worry, and this is another part of the German perspective, is um, you know, for those of you that worked with continental Europe, or Germany in particular, across the political spectrum, there's a very deep felt sense that markets should not dictate to the state. The state should be the primary force. And in the United States or Britain or other sort of Commonwealth countries, uh, government officials might not like the market overwhelming them, but there's sort of, a, uh, sort of a practical sense of this is what we have to deal with when the markets start on Monday. And I think that there's a resistance to this in Germany. And so actually what I'm quite, uh, uh, I think, concerned about is you've seen the European process take a few steps and kind of move close to the edge and then the abyss starts to come and they move a little closer. But at some point, at least my caution was that this becomes a step function. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know when that point comes, but that's the sort of issue that people in Europe are going to have to be, uh, I think, watching in coming weeks.
And the tragedy, in some sense, may be that Germany says it believes in Europe, it wants to save Europe, it's the biggest challenge since the Second World War. At the same time, as you say, there is an insufficient appreciation of the practicalities of markets, that there could be a step change, that they could, they could will some go, but if they don't do things on the way, they get knocked off course. But then there's also, I feel as though they could do with a, a lecture, basically, from your research department. I mean, it, in the period that I studied the World Bank, which was under one of your predecessors from 95 to 2000, one of the central intellectual findings was, we have overused the tool of conditionality. And <coughs> this is the argument for which Bill Easterly became well-known when he left the World Bank, but it was a view, basically, of the institution that if you count the number of times that Pakistan signed on the bottom line and said they would shrink their budget deficit, and then you see how many times they actually did it, uh, you know, it's only a small fraction. I mean, Alan Meltzer is right here. He can cite this stuff uh, back to all of us. Now, if that's the case, and there's been a lesson learned about overusing conditionality from the Bretton Woods institutions, what about from Germany and Brussels? I mean, you go tell the Greeks, oh, you've got to do this and drink, you know, and they can't. At some well, politics is politics. There may be a lesson from the research department. I'll draw a lesson from diplomacy. In my experience, lecturing Germans probably isn't the most profitable uh, form of advocacy. <laughs> uh, <coughs> your father served as ambassador to Germany. You probably on my side on this one. Um, but you're focusing on the core issue. But let's keep in mind, while we've sort of described the parameters of the problem, it, let, let's take Italy. Um, Italy, if given time and to make the reforms, should be able to make it. Now, you know, the danger is, in simple terms, when it joined the Eurozone, it had about 120% of GDP debt. It was paying 6% interest. It went down to 3%. It's now back to 6 to 7 It's still under 20% debt. It'll need to build a primary surplus. But one could, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a believable case that if they could continue to roll over the debt, if they pursued a reform program, and you now do have a political process in Italy, so we'll have to see where it goes, where you have uh, at least officials trying to do that, and we'll have to see, this is where I have a slight difference with some of the discussion about this. Uh, the real challenge is just not technocrats versus politicians. The question is whether technocrats, policy people, can get the political support to make these difficult decisions, whether in Europe or the United States. And that's less of an issue now in Greece because they can continue to roll over the debt. But it is an issue in Italy. And it'll be an issue in Spain, and I think there's now a warning signal for the new Spanish government that it'll have to set the policy course. But is it possible? Yes, look at what Britain has done. I mean, so it is possible. If you're in Germany, you're going to say, I'm going to push that as far as possible, and for good reason. I want to have the fundamental uh, reforms made. Um, the question will be, uh, is if you start to get to a point where um, the liquidity starts to run out of the system, and it starts to affect you know, French financing and others, does the acrimony start to create a tension in the European system so you can't operate it? And, and uh, that's, I think, the picture we're going to, the, the challenge we're going to see over the coming weeks. So, you know, I'm cheering for the guys to make the reform process, but uh, you are certainly correct that, um, you know, whether simply telling people to do the right things is sufficient, uh, you know, is, is, um, th that may not work as a, as a policy tool. I think it goes to the, there are people in Germany, for example, who would say, they'll, they'll use the Marshall Plan, which is always much overused and incorrect historically, but their concept is, um, we'd actually, we as Germans would be willing to invest and put money in, you know, to try to support this, but it goes back to your overall 
conditionality issue. But I will also come back to this other point, which is that we've talked about this in a European context. Obviously, my prime interest in this is seeing it in a global economic situation. And the concern that I started to have in August was up to August, the emerging markets, which have represented about two-thirds of global growth over the past five years, um, were in a little bit of, a, since we've got a German theme here, instead sort of schadenfreude. In other words, they, <laughs> they were saying, oh, well, you know, you guys are struggling, but the main problem for them was overeating. What we saw with the events of August was equity markets, bond spreads, currencies, trade, uh, all start to take a tumble. Came back a little bit with this October Accord, but if we think about this as an international economic system, uh, I, one has to be careful because if emerging markets have represented two-thirds of global growth and the blows to confidence of consumers and business that you've seen in Europe and the United States go to the developing world, then the overall environment for pulling out of any of this becomes a lot harder. In some sense, what you've got going on in Europe is a, is a crisis of the reserve system where uh, there were all these peripheral sovereign bonds which were viewed as safe assets because the Basel ratio said they were safe and because the European Central Bank had a repo system that basically treated Greek sovereign debt as safe. Uh, and so everyone was encouraged to think of this as safe, and all of a sudden, gee, it's not safe, and all these reserve assets issued by all these governments turn out to be risk assets. Now, let's relate that to the bigger picture in the world, because you've written in the Financial Times, I think six months ago, um, that there's a problem with the global monetary system, that, that the reserve assets, if, if you know, a dollar-based system is, is perhaps not the right one, and you've raised a question about it. Can you explain what you're getting at there? <coughs> Well, since this is a broader policy and academic conference, I'll go back a step. My thinking actually on this goes back um, to the 80s uh, when there was some interest in the G7 in international economic coordination. <coughs> and I think the starting point then and now for me is one needs to recognize you still have a system of sovereign states. And you're not going to have some international body sort of dictate or coordinate this. But the question is, at the margin, and I don't want to overstate this, can you encourage the economies to cooperate enough to start to recognize, if you want, the externalities of their action, the effects on others, to see its effect on a global whole? And it's intriguing because, by and large, much of the economics and policy pro profession, after the effort under Baker at the Treasury in the mid-'80s to deal with some of this, was very dismissive of it. And, and, and what's quite intriguing is, uh, much of the current G20 is sort of a return to this. If you look at what's been given to the IMF and the role and others, they're very similar to the set of ideas. So we're coming back to it, but, and this is a big but, the world economy has changed. So the huge shift in the role of emerging markets has got to be encountered in the system. So coming back to the, my own perspective, what I was trying to say is that um, I, I think by and large, uh, you know, it's, important for countries to try to have flexible exchange rates, independent central banks. Um, and so for the G7, as developed economies that have more sophisticated financial systems, one should have a norm, not a rule, but a norm of saying that you'll allow the exchange rates to adjust with, with an exception that if the G7 agree that there's a situation, as sometimes happened with Japan, that's out of 
think that they would agree on some uh, potential form of, of intervention. But second, the idea was over time, you want to move the emerging markets into the system. But you need to recognize they're not, some of them are not, not quite there yet. And so, again, you're trying to move them towards flexible exchange rates, independent, monitor, or independent central banks. <coughs> but um, one needs to recognize, or at least, that, that there could be situations where the rapidity of capital flows could, we, we could look at least at best practices, what hasn't, hasn't worked at that environment. Um, third, uh, I, I personally believe that the dollar will remain the principal reserve currency. But I can see as about the discipline on the dollar as a fact of economic reality, that you could move to a multiple uh, reserve currency system. A lot of this depends on the future, what happens with the euro. And over time, if China moves to an open capital account, I think it would, could play a role in the, the, the yen and the pound in a certain way. So how will countries, uh, in a sense, uh, manage that system, not in a formal coordination? And here, my view was the IMF could play a role as, a, in a sense, a, a referee that can blow a whistle that doesn't necessarily have a penalty that can impose, but at least can try to prod the countries to recognize um, some of the risks of, of, uh, of policy action. And where I then uh, created a lot of attention by inserting gold was not to suggest a gold standard. If you think about this, I'm talking about flexible exchange rates. But from my experience over the past decades, what I've seen is, you know, with all due respect to central bankers, central bankers never want to have anybody judge them. But what I was seeing in markets, when I wrote this, was that the price of gold was starting to reflect some lack of confidence in national policies and central bankers' policies. And so I was simply suggesting that gold, and you can, you can make this point about general commodities. I think with other commodities, sometimes the supply and demand factors are more influential, but you could, you could also look at this as a basket of commodities with gold, are, should be used as an indicator, as an information tool. So I wasn't seeing it so much as a formal anchor but as a way of being a check on, on, the, uh, on, on the checkers um, in, and, uh, and kind of used in the system. Now, the one other aspect so of this... Used in the system. So, so I'm a central banker. I see that the gold price is going up. I have to change my monetary policy in response to that? Not necessarily, but you should... I don't think central bankers simply look at one variable and then turn the switch. I think they look at a series of variables, and it would start to indicate some things about the fact that in practical terms, People are treating gold as a monetary store of value, and they're saying, I'm not quite comfortable in the dollar or the euro, and I can't totally invest in renminbi because it's not an open capital account. And that should be factored into the calculation of, of your policies, not only for central bankers, but also Which for... Which it probably is already. I mean, central banks are already aware of what's going on in the market. They see what happens to the gold price. They couldn't avoid seeing it. Well, yes, whether it's factored in, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that... Uh, <laughs> you know, there's sometimes some very intelligent people who've done work on this, and some of them are, uh, is that they, they become captives of their own past analysis. So obviously there's been a lot of work done on the problems of the gold standard uh, with the Great Depression recoveries. And sometimes then they, they, they sort of then overreact against the idea that gold could ever play a role. I'm being very pragmatic. What I partly reflect is I talk to people in markets. I'm asking them, what are they seeing in markets? What does this tell me about something? And sometimes 
no offense to scholars, but scholars get so wedded to the beauty of the structure of their ideas or their dissertation or their book that they ignore markets. And my experience is that's a mistake. So, uh, but the last point I'll come back on this is, I also put in the idea a little bit with the SDR. But the idea there was not that, you know, the SDR is just a combination of currencies, but, uh, so I don't see it as playing a principal role. But I believe that the world would be healthier monetary system if the Chinese move towards an open capital composition. And my experience with the Chinese in the WTO was that um, they accept and sometimes appreciate the role of international organizations if it's part of a rules-based system, and that one might be able to encourage the forces in China more eager to move towards an open capital account. If you said the renminbi could have a role in, the renminbi, uh, in an SDR if it pursues certain policies. So it's an incentive system. Now, could people legitimately criticize this and say, well, look, that's not much of a structure. It's a little bit of a nudge here or there and cooperation. I freely acknowledge that. But you know, until you change the nation state system, I think that's what you've got. But the question is, at the margin, can you move towards some greater sense of, uh, of avoiding autarky and recognition that national policies will influence others? Because at, because at the end of the day, remember, I started part of this as a trade person. I mean, the bottom line of what's the Eurozone or others is that, you know, I'm always worried about the protectionism rising its head. And, you, you know, you see signs of that today, too. So uh, the analogy with the WTO is very interesting. I mean, the WTO accession did drive a series of market-based reforms in China. And I can see that the SDR as a carrot uh, could drive capital account reforms. There have been Chinese officials who've said they'd like to be included as early as 2015. That seems very soon. What, what, what do you see as a reasonable time frame? I don't set a date. I set it based on performance. I mean, so in other words, I think one should have a reasonable sense of what sort of open capital account that you should have. There are clearly Chinese officials moving to internationalize the RMB. You see this in the discussion in the role of Hong Kong. Frankly, I think China is actually looking upon London as perhaps playing a role with the uh, international RMB market. Um, but I'll add one other element, because remember, I, for all the talk of macroeconomics, I actually think microeconomics is quite important. Um, the work that we're doing with China is focused on what could be the much more important issue, which is that I think the Chinese have come to recognize that the model of investment and export-led growth that has been very successful for 30 years is not going to work within the balance of the international economy in the future. And so we're trying to take their planning of what they'd like to do for the next five-year plan and go into quite detail of how you need to change pricing, financial institution policies, deposit policies, to move <coughs> away from the structure of that system. And, and uh, the good news is, you know, people in China, even though they've grown 10% a year for 30 years, they could say basically, look, you know, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And in some ways, that's what Japan did. You know? um, but they realize, for example, if you just as an example, if you take the Chinese growth rates roughly the same by 2030, it would be like adding 15 South Koreas to the international system. And I just don't think the system's going to take that. In terms of export volume. Yeah. And, 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 and so what, um, uh, if anything, you know, I would say the fact that China is willing to consider some of these structural changes could be a little bit of a salutary statement to the Europeans in the U.S. Maybe we ought to be looking at some of the structural changes on the microeconomic side in our economy. Okay, it's a pretty tight session, but we've got time for a couple of questions, I think.